0: Flightbridge Ed live and online courses are even better now that they're powered by iSimulate. With Reality360 providing powerful monitor and ventilator simulations, students don't have to imagine anymore, they can engage. Now, with the brand new CTGI module, students can train with highly advanced and realistic fetal heart rate simulations. Just another example of Flightbridge Ed and iSimulate being your partner in discovery. Check out iSimulate.com for more information.
1: Everybody, as promised, this is going to be part two of Vaccine Straight Talk. Again, if you missed part one, go back and uh, um, exceptional podcast. Let's get started. The content of this podcast is based on medical fact and evidence based practice from credible authoritative sources, but is not a substitute for your institution's policies, procedures, common sense, or good judgment. The views and opinions are those of Eric Bauer and Flight Bridge Ed in their entirety. This is the Flight Bridge Ed Podcast: Critical Care and Emergency
2: Medicine Education for Nurses and Paramedics. Here's your host, Eric Bauer.
0: Well, so we've got a great history of what viruses are. We reviewed the sort of development of RNA vaccines. We've talked about EUAs. We've talked about why was this one so fast compared to other ones. Let's talk about the shots on the arm. So, Dr. Jarvis, uh, how many doses have been given? What have we been seeing as the result?
3: You bet. So it's uh, the numbers that I have are for the U.S. alone, and this is as of August 24th. So sorry that my date is five days old. Um, (laughs) But there have been 205 million doses of Pfizer in the United States. 205 million. There have been 14.3 million, and I'm rounding just a little bit, but 14.3 million doses of Moderna, and there have been 14 million doses of the Johnson & Johnson in the United States. Um, that is, um, let me see, roughly speaking, carry the want, a lot. That's a lot of vaccines that have been given. And what we know is, you have looked at the efficacy of um, so efficacy in the trials, unbelievably good. Efficiency in the real world, still really really good. Now, if you take a look at everybody knows, Delta is sort of a whole different beast. It's probably not a whole different, but it's definitely a more pissed off beast. Um, it's more <laughs> transmissible, higher higher viral loads. Um, but even when you look at uh, Delta variant, you are still seeing substantial protection against, well, you're still seeing substantial protection against asymptomatic disease, just not as, oh, my God, miraculous as we saw with the prior uh, variants, but still very, very good. And one of the ways that you can actually assess this is, well, let's take a look at the people who are getting sick, who are being hospitalized, who are being put on a ventilator and being um, put in the ICU and are dying, and say, well, how many of them are vaccinated and how many of them are not vaccinated? Now, if you take a look at this, this is some data from the CDC, and if you think that this graph looks an awful lot like the efficacy graphs, the kaplan Meyer curves in the original trials, that's because they do. You're still seeing a huge difference in the protection that you get with the vaccine. Um, If you look at, um, I think I sent you some data from my hospital, Ritu. um, And what you'll see is that the overwhelming um, proportion of patients who are um, in the hospital, who are sick on a ventilator, who are in the ICU and who die, overwhelming majority of them are unvaccinated. So if you look at breakthrough vaccines, well, how many, what proportion of people are actually breaking through? Well, obviously the calculation is gonna vary depending on the study, but most of them are somewhere between one and 2% of people who are fully vaccinated will have some type of breakthrough infection. So let's think, if you think about this a lot, there's a little bit of a recall bias at, at work here so let's just think about an analogy you go to buy a red silverado pickup let's say and the reason you picked red is because nobody else has a red silverado pickup you know you've been looking around don't blow my don't blow my example richard by telling i just ask if it vehicle. has to be a chevy does it have to be a chevy it does i'm a chevy guy so it has to be I a know. chevy
1: Your so dog let's just say
3: it. that you have never seen a red silverado you go to the dealership, and let's just pretend that dealerships actually have cars that they can sell these days. Um, you go, you get your brand new, beautiful red Silverado, and you drive home, and you see fifteen other red Silverados on the road. It's not because there are actually more red Silverados; it's just because you're noticing them. You're more aware. So, if you look at this, one percent of those fully vaccinated will um, develop develop COVID. Well, 1%, if there are only a million people vaccinated, 1% is a relatively small number and you're not likely to hear about it much. When there are 100 million, 200 million people who are vaccinated, it's still 1%, but that's a much larger number and you're most definitely going to hear about it more. So the actual numbers of breakthroughs are certainly going up. But you would actually expect that as the proportion of the population that gets vaccinated goes up. Now, if you look at there was a a nice paper that was done that looked at um, across the United States what the risk of. uh, Let me see here. The risk of being hospitalized if you're vaccinated compared to unvaccinated, it is 36-fold. So relative risk, 36% or 36-fold. 36 36 times. Right. Time, right. Times. Yeah. Times. Not percent.
1: Times. So time. That is. You're basically 40 times more likely to be hospitalized if you're not vaccinated.
3: Correct. If you want to turn that into percentages, let's like 3,990% higher risk, much higher risk. For death, it's 21-fold higher. So substantially higher. Um, So what we know is that the vaccines have been given to a really large proportion of the population. Um, So it is, I think I actually looked it up. Um, Where are we? Over, I'm sorry. Worldwide, according to the data, 5 billion doses of COVID vaccine. That's a lot of vaccine. Yeah. Um, they are not holding up against as well against Delta as they did against Alpha and uh, Beta, but still remarkably, remarkably well. And honestly, substantially better than we initially hoped before we saw the initial trials.
1: Well, they are holding up, though, on the
3: hospitalization front.
1: Mm hmm. There's no the, the hospitalization piece they are still holding up, but the infection rate is a little bit higher during Delta. But I, you know, with the number of doses that were given, you know, back to sort of what I talked about with EUA and but but also kind of research. This is the most studied vaccine in all of history, period. So this is the idea idea that it's experimental between the combination of the fact that the trials were greater than any other trial but that the surveillance and we'll talk about a little bit about that later on um, but that the surveillance has been so thorough this
2: really is the most studied vaccine throughout all of history
1: what don't, don't you think
2: Hayden oh yeah for sure i mean just the vast number of people that have gotten in such a short period of time and with you know the beauty of the internet it just has been put into a you know, ter- like just a, a really microscope of criticism and, um, you know, misinformation that uh, has then, uh, you know, allowed us to have to double check and make sure that what we're saying is true. You know, I, I think that is, you know, one thing that uh, critics uh, do bring to the table is they make us double check our work. Uh, and so as a result, we've had to do that time and time again.
1: Well, we're all. I'm gonna tell you that that Jeff and I are very skeptical in general. When when a new study comes out, we actually don't believe it <laughs> until we read it three or four times. I'm with uh, you there. And, and so, uh, even though we are, you know, we're we're talking about these results in a very positive way because I think they're very positive. But I've read a lot of science in my life these are the most overwhelmingly positive results i've ever read <laughs> in a lot of different ways um the i know we had we we're going to talk about breakthroughs in a little bit but jeff brought them up in terms of the numbers and i have kind of a way i like to to be i like to sort of demonstrate it for folks so mike is it okay if i run through this real quick please yeah because um, one of the things you started seeing this in the coverage of Israel, which is a very vaccinated population, but that people were freaking out because 50% of the infections were vaccinated or whatever. And clearly that means that the vaccine's not waning and or is waning, but that's ex- exact opposite. The fact that the, as more of our population is vaccinated, we would expect a greater percentage of the, vac- of the people who get infected to be vaccinated because they're so overwhelmingly more. And so when you start seeing, oh, 50% of the people who got an infection were vaccinated, that's meant to alarm you to say it's not working, but it's actually the exact opposite. And the way I like to demonstrate this when I talk to people is this. Let's say you get invited to a party and that party there's a hundred people there. And you're a very careful person and you um, only want to go if there are people who are vaccinated. And of those 100 people that are vaccinated. 90- You're killing me, brother, by the way.
0: With that, with, with that example?
1: Oh, yeah, I'm killing you. Anyway, okay. sorry. Go ahead. Uh, so, Inside I go. That. so 90 people are vaccinated. And then the, the, the guy shows up, the uninvited guest, his name is Mr. Delta or Mrs. Delta. They show up and they come to the party, and Mr. Delta is a very low talker. So when you talk to Mr. Delta, you got to get, like, really close. And everybody at the party talks to Mr. Delta, and then Mr. Delta leaves. And then at the end of the day, everybody who wasn't vaccinated, so the 10 people who weren't vaccinated got COVID because they talked to Mr. Delta. But the 90 people who were vaccinated, and let's say the vaccine is, like, just like our current vaccine, 90% effective. Of the 90 people who got vaccinated, only 10% of them got infected, and that's nine. So nine vaccinated people got infected and 10 unvaccinated people got infected. So roughly 50% of the infected people were vaccinated. So that causes a lot of consternation, but when you look at it, it it's just exactly the way numbers should work. Now let's say we go to another party, this time only 30% are vaccinated, which is roughly the same percentage of vaccination in our low vaccinated areas. So only 30 people are vaccinated and 70 people aren't. And Mr. Delta shows up at that party, running through all the stuff, low talker, blah, blah, blah. This time, 70%, 70 people who are not vaccinated get infected, but only three people who are. And so you have 73 people who are get sick but only about 5% of them are vaccinated. And that's, and, and so, so when you compare the two, you, you look at one and like, oh, only about 5% of the people who are sick are vaccinated, but in this other place, I don't want to go there because 50% who got sick. But in, the, in, the, in one party, only 19 people got sick. In the other party, 73 people got sick. So the vaccine was very effective. It worked very well. Um, So these percentages can, can be used to fool you. Vaccine, the vaccine is still effective. And the more people that have it, the more we'll see a few of these infections and that percentage should rise. Um, And that is, that's normal statistics. That's just the way the numbers will work out. And that doesn't mean anything is reduced or not working, or you're less likely to get it or you're, or it's, it's, you know, just understand that anytime anybody reports the vaccine percentage rate is getting higher vaccinated, it, it, it's, um, it's, it's kind of a false equivalency.
3: And I think that the real challenge, the problem that we run into is similar to the one that Hayden had mentioned. So you have this concept that Ritu is talking about, and unfortunately, math can be hard. And we don't have, I think as a species, we have not evolved to understand relative risk. Uh, we don't judge risk well. I mean, look at all the people who ride around on their motorcycles in shorts, flip-flops, and no helmet who are afraid to fly because of how dangerous it is. We're not very good at perceiving risks. Um, but we're also not very good at understanding numbers, um, just like Ratu was talking about. And there is a portion of our population who is seeking to make money and wreak havoc off of intentionally manipulating these numbers. So an example recently is it went out on one of the big anti-vax websites that people who are vaccinated are 25 times more likely to infect someone else than someone who's not vaccinated. Um, And they point to a study. Well, that's not what the study said at all. It was comparing those infected with who had never been vaccinated, comparing those who were infected with Delta versus Alpha. Nobody involved was vaccinated. That was willful and intentional. um, And it was designed to to confuse people. So you have the math is hard thing, which is just a natural thing. It affects all of us. And then you have the willful um misinformation and disinformation and it doesn't help matters at all.
2: Yeah, well, and, and kind of to that point, you know, when I so my wife is a is a PhD student or is a PhD graduate. She does cancer biology and things like that. You know, I'm not an expert in in what she does. So when I go and read her articles, I commonly come to very wrong and weird conclusions that she then um, you know, Reminds me what you know that she's the expert and, and tells me what is supposed to be understood there. And so you know that's the other thing with a lot of these trials is who are they written for? Uh, and you know when when I read you know COVID information and, and read that I commonly come to different conclusions uh, than uh, you know other people in my family. And so it isn't until I'm able to kind of discuss and and elaborate on the conclusions that they're making that. Yeah, you know, we can understand one another.
0: Yeah. I mean that make, that makes a ton of sense. So let's let's jump on to our next topic here. And I'm hoping we can generate some questions from the folks that are watching. But um, uh, I wanted to talk about the VARE system. So the, the 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 system that has been put in place to track all the adverse events from vaccines. And uh, Dr. Sani, we we sort of uh, teed you up to talk about this one to use your golf analogy there just real quick. Um, But there is a system out there that people are encouraged to report um, effects that they may have, right? And, and if, and if you're one of the people that got the vet, one of the vaccines, you probably enrolled and got text messages from the CDC that said, how are you feeling today? Uh, You know, all these kind of things. And so um, I want you to talk about just a couple of things. One, what is the VAERS system? So the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. And then also, I would love to have a group discussion about when you give 100 million, 200 million, 300 million doses of whatever, there are people that are going to have sort of normal medical problems. People still have normal medical things that happen to them. Like diverticulitis. Like diverticulitis, like two people I know. One guy I know really well. The other guy I know pretty well. Uh, We both got the same vaccine. We both had diverticulitis. Now, is that weird? Uh, Yeah, it's kind of weird. But so talk a little bit about that. I'd love to talk. I would love to have a a good discussion uh, about sort of what happens to people when they get the vaccine.
1: So the vaccine adverse event reporting system is basically in place as one of the tools that the CDC and FDA use together jointly to help monitor safety with vaccines. And they're like, well, why don't they, people are like, why do they do this for this, but not anything else? Well, they actually do. You can report adverse events to the FDA for any medication, for any FDA approved piece of equipment. So number one, it's not unusual that they have this vaccine, the VAERS system. I, I point
3: you at the example of droperidol, too. <laughs> yeah.
1: our favorite medication to use, droperidol, as a great example, um, and, and it it does take on a little bit of a different tone, though, because of vaccines are part of the public health mission, and as as Hayden said, you're giving a vaccine to a healthy person. Um, and so the, that's why the CDC is involved also, because the CDC is the nation's public health arm. Um, so the, the Vaccine adverse, um, uh, adverse Event Reporting System, and for those of you who are in safety, let me just put pull aside. We've talked about safety on this podcast before, but one of the hallmarks of a safe culture, of safety culture, is you wanna have these reporting systems in place that make it very easy for people to report when something bad happens. And so, what the, what this what the VAERS system does is it's a uh, reporting system that is open. That number one, healthcare professionals are required to report. So, if you give somebody a vaccine and they get hives, you are required to report to VAERS that this person got vaccine and then had an allergic re- reaction, but the other piece is that it is open for the public, and so basically, um, which I did not do, but we could have gone online and said, I got the vaccine, um, uh, the sec- I got my second dose five weeks ago, and now I have diverticulitis. Is it related to the vaccine? I don't know, but I'm reporting this adverse event that happened after receiving the vaccine. And so what people need to understand about this system... Oh, we lost Jeff.
0: Yeah. Um, Oh, yeah, We'll keep an eye out for him.
1: What people need to understand about this system is that it is not causality, um, but it is association. And it's also... an exercise in great transparency this data is open to anybody, which has also led to some misuse of the data uh, where people have posted things and said, well you know this many people died after getting the vaccine it's right in VARES. but as we know, some percentage of the of of people will die at any point in time um, and so what they're what they're looking for is is um is sort of things above the kind of standard. So what what they what the CDC and the FDA do with this data they consider this their early warning system. And a great example would be myocarditis. And and you know these vaccines are extremely safe. Extremely safe doesn't mean zero risk, right? So there are things that can happen to the vaccinated. And we can talk if Mike if you're Mike, if Jeff comes back Part of what he wanted to talk about was, um, was was sort of you know kind of some of these risks compared to the other the rest of the population, but these are an early warning system that they then um, um, they then take the if something kind of bubbles up, then they will take that and take a closer look at it, and, and what they what they said what. And myocarditis is a great example. There were a few, I think, 17 or 1,800 cases of myocarditis that were reported, and and that started bubbling up, and they are like, hmm, this doesn't seem right. This seems a little odd. Let's take a closer look. And then they were able to then look at cases much more closely uh, and evaluate the relative risk. And what they found was that roughly 700 to 800 cases of myocarditis or an inflammation of the heart that occurred in primarily young people uh, who got the vaccine. Um, And at the time it was compared to 353 million doses of that vaccine that were given. So it's extremely small. It's so small that it would not have risen up in in a 30 or 40,000 person trial. Um, and so, you know, statistically, it does look like there are a few more cases of myocardi- myocarditis than you would expect uh, from the general population. Not a lot, though, because at the same time, you would have expected several hundred people to just get myocarditis r- randomly at the same time. Sort of like diverticulitis. What? Or diverticulitis. <laughs> That's exactly right. Um, and... Uh, um, and and so, but when they did this sort of statistical analysis, and it's all there on the CDC's webpage, they found that this is a risk uh, that is exceedingly small, but it's not zero. The other piece is that, but the the other piece is that people, when somebody, you can download the VARES data yourself and play with it. Um, again, that's the raw data. So when you look at how they did dealt with myocarditis. It raised a flag. They then did. They then brought in, re, you know, researchers to research the data, follow up on the individual cases, follow closely with the physicians. You know, we were told if you have a case with myocarditis, call this phone number so that you could talk to somebody from the CDC. Um, and so, just the Veers data, VAIRS data that it, itself is not something that you can look at and say there's causality here, just because something showed up in VARS, And then there's all kinds of stories that there are people who are populating VARS with falsehoods just to make it look bad. Um, And then some, I know some people who actually put in things like I grew a third arm, just because to prove that you could do that. So, um, uh, you know, that's, that's the the VAERS system, and when you hear people say all the data is in vars just look right at it. That is very raw, unscrubbed, un un. Uh, there's been nobody's looked at any of those cases uh, to really, but it's an important part of that monitoring system that we have in place for vaccines.
2: Yeah, well, and I think the Johnson Johnson vaccine is another uh, you know success. Sorry, going back to the point that. You know, these vaccines are, have been the most scrutiny of any other vaccine we've had in history. Um, you know, the Johnson Johnson vaccine, though, is the concern about it causing um, blood clots, uh, specifically in the brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they te- did temporarily hold giving Johnson & Johnson vaccines out to people because they wanted to evaluate this risk. And so, you know, that tells me that the VAERS system is working, uh, and it is working in these COVID vaccines. Uh, eventually, the researchers got in there. They looked at the data. They cleaned the data, uh, got rid of all the, you know, incorrect, um, you know, the the, the you know, they cleaned the data so that it, it, you can make comparisons. Probably the best way to say that. And uh, and they didn't show that it had any major you know changes over the normal rates in the population. And so uh, it was then allowed to restart the vaccine. Uh, but that does tell me that the Ver system works, uh, and it is something that is actively being watched by the the research teams.
0: Yeah. Well, that is that is good, um, and yeah, I mean, take, I mean, I, the fact that anyone can go in there, go look at the data, I think that's good. But also, I guess you have to realize that. You know, do you, one, do you know what you're looking at? Can you parse that stuff out? I mean, it's, it's just, it's just can be a mess, right? <laughs> like, Oh Lord, like, I'm not going to go in there. I mean, I know this much about that kind of stuff. I'm not going to go in there and, in and, and try to come up with my own conclusions based on what I'm seeing in VAERS. Like that's, I don't know. That's just me. I, don't, I wouldn't. Like, why would I do that? Like, it makes no sense to me, but that's just me. That's just me. Um, All right, so we have already talked a little bit about breakthroughs. How about boosters? Boosters are coming up uh, as sort of a hot topic. Um, And I'm curious what your guys' thoughts are on that. I see that there's a couple of trains of thought out there. For those of you that maybe have been vaccinated, um, this talk of boosters is coming up. So uh, Dr. Smith, what are your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, so boosters is a, um, it's a topic that there's a lot of evolving evidence coming out. It is, um, it is hard to, you know, I, I guess, so I like taking the, the stance that the, the IDSA, which is the Society of Infectious Disease Doctors, uh, that they take when it comes to boosters for otherwise healthy people. I'll, I'll start with there because that's probably the most succinct answer that I have. And all this is from their website and I think it really does a good job of summing up the data that we currently have on boosters. Uh, and then it, um, uh, and then it kind of reflects my my opinions as well. They say um, there you know there are many s- small observational studies that show that additional doses of mRNA COVID vaccines can increase antibody concentrations in certain previously vaccinated individuals. Um, but importantly, these studies use different schedules for third dose, and then they use a wide variety of antibody assays. Thus, their results cannot be easily pooled or compared with each other. So what that tells me is that the data isn't, and then I looked at a lot of the studies that they've been cited to make that comment, and there's a lot of conflicting evidence there. So there's no real consensus yet. And um, you know, the the data is kind of is hard to compare to one another. Yeah. So it tells me that we need to research this more and try and see what it is as far as boosters in healthy people. But what is pretty well established at this point is boosters in immunocompromised people. uh, And there has been a benefit shown in in giving a third booster to that population. And so the idea behind that is to get um, what we call seroconversion, basically going from zero antibodies to having effective antibodies uh, against coronavirus. And so when we report uh, you know, a 95% efficacy, what that means is that 95% of people were able to get to a point that they can prevent serious COVID infection. They got the, they got enough antibodies to do that. When we run that data through, uh, and that data comes from the original clinical trials, uh, and it's been redemonstrated against Delta variant um, for, for most populations, that there is still this very high, over ninety percent efficacy about from pre- preventing serious disease. When we get to um, immunocompromised people, though, it's a little bit different because you know just because you give them the a vaccine and introduce the body to the spike protein doesn't necessarily mean that they create those antibodies, and so uh, we see levels that are quite a bit lower of. Again, this seroconversion to be being able to have the, enough you know antibodies to fight the infection. Giving a third boost, a third dose of the vaccine has shown some benefit uh, in this population to allow more people to seroconvert or develop those antibodies. Um, the data does not. The data yet. It's there. It's in process, but the data yet. It's still kind of messy about whether this translates into um, translates into the real world that you are then able to avoid serious infections. Yeah. Um, and so that, that is kind of the piece that I personally am you know, looking for is do we see that reflect in the population that yes, we are you, you do also get uh, you know a benefit as far as avoiding serious infection?
0: That's good. So we we did have a question coming in the chat, which I think is good. And and um, we've covered a ton of our stuff. So I think that's probably good as well. Um, but Brian wants to know, uh, long-term effects, uh, any way we can address that? Is there any actual real risk that in 10 years, we will all grow third arms out of nowhere?
2: Uh, I, I can feel that one. Um, So the the idea that you're going to cause this prolonged effect from the vaccine is um, it hasn't been shown. So we have a a year's worth of data now on millions of people worldwide that the vaccine doesn't have any long-term major effects. Um, And then just conceptually, when you think about the mRNA vaccine, again, it's mRNA it's something that's in your body for hours, and then it goes away. Your body literally eats it up. So it's not in your body for that long. It Does cause an immune response, uh, and that's in a response that we are very well uh, understanding of due to other vaccines. Uh, and typically, three months is when you, when we can say, as far as safety data goes, that there's going to be no prolonged effect from the vaccine. With that said, you know we we are keeping track of that. Uh, And for a year now, we haven't seen anything. And I, you know, have a strong suspicion that we won't see any long-term effects from the vaccine. What we do see long-term effects of is from COVID. Uh, COVID has long hauler syndrome. It has, you know, you have scarred lungs, people need lung transplants. I mean, COVID ravages your body. And so when I'm comparing the two, you know I, I look at i look at vaccines and i say i don't see anything long term here sure people may get headaches and and fevers for maybe a day or two i know there are exceptions but after you know at least a couple of weeks all of that's gone and you're you you don't have any risk of getting covid which then i look over here in this hand you know you have long haul you have you know prolonged neurologic effects that's actually being well established in the research now as well is, you know, prolonged almost like a dementia type picture, um, after COVID and, you know, all of these things that, uh, tell me, you know, COVID has long-term effects. Um, and so no vaccines don't cause long-term effects, long-term symptoms. It's not in your body for that long. And the effects that we do see are gone in a couple of weeks.
1: The other piece, too, is, you know, I I had one person that I talked to that said, you know, you watch late night TV. It's like if you took Zantac or if you took, you know, and and um, one of the key, key differences is that if you look at almost. No, if you look at all of these scenarios where a drug was removed from the market post post FDA approval, there's. it's always like 20 years of exposure to that drug before you start to see something. And there is only one or two, depending on, you know, your exposure to the vaccine is only right after the shot. So maybe it's once or twice or potentially a third time. Um, And so, you know, there's no comparison uh, between sort of that and sort of these medications that people took for 15 or 20 or 30 years, and then started to see some negative effects. Um, and, and I think they're just, they're not interchangeable, but people like to point that out, um, that, that, uh, that they would be. But yeah. it's repeated
2: exposure over a long period of time, none of which happens with a vaccine. Yeah, again, vaccines are not they're not medicine. They're not a true, they're not a you know a treatment, they're a vaccine. So it's it's different data. It's comparing apples to oranges.
3: Mike, did you get the uh that last image that I, I did. did? Yeah. Now Give me it's two, two seconds here and I'll get that, that. I think Hold it up. hits by the way. I just uh sorry about my little internet issue. Um the internet gods are conspiring against me today. So I wanted to talk about this. Um, this was uh, popped up in New England Journal of Medicine uh, within the last week, and I just got a copy of this today. I found out about it, and what this is. I think this image one it's a great data visualization. I'm sort of a data visualization nerd, but this really gets to the perspective, the point that Hayden was making. If you're looking at the risk of something, myocarditis or um, deep venous thrombosis, just from the vaccine, you're kind of not comparing, you're you're missing half the story. So if you choose not to get vaccinated, that's great. You are certainly not at any risk from the vaccine, anything theoretic that might happen. That's true. I, I don't know how you could argue with that but you're kind of at risk for getting the exact same thing from COVID. And this image shows you the relative risk if you're looking at the blue line. And what we're looking at is, um, basically I call them TIE fighter plots because they look like a TIE fighter to me. Uh, but the the circle in the middle is the percentage of people um, or the, the relative risk, I should say, that has um, something whether it's deep venous thrombosis, arrhythmia, or appendicitis. And in blue, it is comparing those who were vaccinated compared to those who were not vaccinated. And then in the, I don't know, is that yellow gold? It's comparing people, all people who were not vaccinated, and it's comparing the unvaccinated who had COVID to the unvaccinated who did not have COVID. And the little dot is the proportion in the two Um, Wings of the TIE fighter, if you will, are the 95% confidence interval. And if all of, if both wings are on one side of one, that means that is a statistically significant difference. And if you look at uh, deep venous thrombosis, for example, because that was an issue with the Johnson and Johnson, and this was in particular looking at the mRNA um, virus or vaccines you'll see that there is not a significant difference between those who are vaccinated and those who are not. That's great. But there is, if you look at the gold, substantially higher risk of getting a DVT if you have COVID. So you can't take, well, I mean, you can, but it's probably not in your best interest if you just focus on the risk from a vaccine and completely exclude the risk of getting COVID. Because we know getting the vaccine dramatically decreases your risk of getting COVID, and that then dramatically decreases your risk of getting the badness that comes along with COVID, including deep venous thrombosis, myocardial infarction, intracranial hemorrhage, myocarditis, pericarditis, pulmonary embolism, and acute kidney injury. So you have to compare those two things together. There was,
0: not, and we're going to change lanes just real quick because I know there's a couple more things I just want to get wrapped up here. Um, and there was, uh, there continues to be questions about people that um, are of childbearing age and that would like to be pregnant or are pregnant um, or, you know, just other folks as it relates to getting the vaccine. Did we have any information for those folks? Get your shot. That would be the information for them. I'll
3: tell you what, I think Ritu was going to, Mikey, I think you still have the image up. Um, I I think Ritu was going to talk about um, something that I had not even heard, which was about changes to, or maybe it was Hayden, about changes to menstrual cycle. But I will take on the issue of um, miscarriage and fertility. So there was a report from a PhD that came out that said, Because of the genetic components of the spike protein and the genetic components of a protein that is found on placenta, there is a theoretic risk of cross-reactivity. Therefore, the antibodies that you get from the vaccine would attack the placenta. Great. So it took me a good five hours to track this one down. And it turns out there's no truth to it, but I still don't have those five hours back. (laughs) <laughs> so where this comes from is if you look at the genomic sequence for the spike protein and compare it to this placental protein, there are, I believe, three or four, there's a three or four amino acid sequence that is the same between them. Now, we're talking about a thousand base pairs. I'd say 80 three 80 or four? More. Yes, that doesn't seem like very many. Correct. Let's, let's go back and just think about math. If you have a 1,000 base pairs, and remember, there are only four options for these, right? <laughs> there are only four base pairs that you have to build this entire sequence. And there is a sequence of three that both of these things, the antibody and, or the spike protein and the uh, placental protein, have in common three out of a 1,000 is not enough to actually create a functional thing. So that is where this hypothetical thing comes from. Now, if you take a look at that, first off, even that on its face doesn't make any sense for exactly the same reason Ratu is scratching his head going, wait, what? Three base pairs? But then to just take a look at the empiric evidence. Take a look at, in the trials, the women who became pregnant after they'd become vaccinated, perfectly healthy children. Um, What we're seeing, we are not seeing any difference in miscarriage rates between those who are vaccinated and those who are not. People are having perfectly normal, healthy children at the same rate they would have had they not been vaccinated. Correct. Provided, of course, they didn't get COVID because right. we do see problems with pregnancy and COVID. Exactly. So the other thing, so there's no additional harm in pregnancy getting vaccinated. And we know there is additional harm in not getting vaccinated if you get COVID, but there's actually benefit to the child because you're creating antibodies by the vaccine process and you can pass those antibodies on to your baby. Now your infant who doesn't isn't going to be able to get vaccinated for many years actually has protection that they wouldn't have had otherwise. Right. So, yeah, this is this turns out to be not really anything there. So, if you look at say the body of experts that are, you know, the experts, the world's experts in pregnancy, the American College of Pediatrician, gynecologist, they're absolutely clear about it. Get vaccinated,
1: right? And there is data that shows that getting COVID while pregnant leads to preterm labor.
2: So, yeah, there's there's really good data on that. You know, COVID and pregnancy doesn't really don't do well together. You know, and and I can totally uh, empathize with this concern about the vaccine and pregnancy. You know, early on in the. In the pandemic you know I had, a, I had a good friend that asked me that you know i'm pregnant should i get the vaccine and i didn't really know how to answer her um but now we really do have good data that shows that it's safe uh there is a study in the new england journal of medicine uh june 17th uh, it shows uh it's it's called preliminary findings of mrna COVID 19 vaccine safety in pregnant persons and i highlighted in pregnant persons because that, that's what I was looking for because the original clinical trials, you know, cr- you know, did not have pregnant people in it. Yeah. Uh, but now we do actually have quite a bit of data that says that it is safe in pregnancy. Uh, and so, you know, I, I do, I don't have as many reservations about that. I don't have any reservations about it in, in pregnancy, but I can totally relate to the, to the question and, and the concern. But yeah, the,
3: absolutely. it's, a, it's a scary thing. My sister was still breastfeeding when this first came out and had a big question about whether she should get vaccinated. And I said, well, hold that thought. Let me see what I can find out. Mm -hmm. Um, And fortunately, there had been one small study that looked at this and looked like it was favorable. Now I'm just checking my reference manager. And I have nine references just in my bibliography, which let's face it, is all about ketamine, droperidol, and airways. Nine <laughs> of them about the safety of the vaccine with pregnancy. Right. Yeah. And the this other, isn't my specialty. And there are not. Yeah.
1: The other question that... The, the, so the other question that that I get is fertility for men. And, mm. and um, you know... My response is well, no, there's data that shows that the, it's a penis and larger and that. <laughs> oh wait, this is supposed to be a family show.
0: I
3: think um, you're confusing two oh, of Pfizer's
0: oh, products. I love you, by the way.
1: But <laughs> but the re- but this is another one. So like men and fertility and again there's zero data that shows and and when we go back when we go back to this is where the whole mRNA research 20 years really is important which is that that in the animal studies there was no problem with with the fertility and then the small and the and the human trials that uh, that were done uh, also showed that it that there were no issues with fertility and it comes back down to the point that that Hayden made was that this stuff is in your bloodstream, uh, sorry, it's not in your bloodstream, is in your body for really just a few hours to days. There was one study that I read when we were first, uh, oh, the dog's coming in outstanding. Uh, There was one study that I read where they looked at like, where does the, where does the vaccine go? And they radio tagged the vaccine, and this was an mRNA study. It wasn't uh, specific to COVID, but they tagged the vax, the payload, um, and um, and then with a radioactive marker. And then they injected it uh, and um, saw where it went. And it went to it stayed basically in the injection site, and then made a little bit of a journey where it was taken into the lymph, the lymph nodes that were closest to the injection site. And that's really important because getting to those lymph nodes is what really amps up what's called the cellular response. And so that's, I think, part of the reason why this vaccine is so effective is because it not only encourages auto antibody uh, creation, that it really ramps up that what's called cellular response from the T cells, but there was no vaccine that moved to the, to the genitals. There was no place. So there's no way that it could cause a fertility problem for males. And then again, in all, in, in our current surveillance, there's no
2: issue. And in the previous studies, there was, there's no issue. And as far as infertility in females, I looked up that as well, and I didn't I didn't find any evidence uh, to support the claim that it causes infertility in females. Um, I did find a lot of studies, and and there's a lot of uh, databases uh, that these women that are trying to get pregnant will use in order to kind of track their responses with getting the vaccine or not, uh, and um part of it was in that study that i cited earlier and another is in a kind of a review article of sorts um that was in uh you know in a that i was reading as well and both of these studies uh, didn't show any changes of infertility they didn't show any changes of menstrual cycles beyond what was normal for the time a lot of these um, Women actually endorsed menstrual cycle changes during the pandemic. And the what I was what I was reading was that it was more likely a stress response than it was a stress reso- stress response to the pandemic than it was a function of the vaccine. Uh, because the the rates were very similar, like kind of like the placebo effect that you see in clinical trials is kind of what was reported in these um, you know, big survey databases. And Um, you know, that's actually a well-known phenomenon in gynecology is that when you are, when, when a woman is stressed, it can actually change her cycles. And so the, the, what they were saying was, is it wasn't really a function of the vaccine and more of the pandemic and social situation as a whole.
0: Cool. Perfect. All right. Listen, we have done, um, I think a great job of sort of getting to the point of what, what we want to do. I mean, it's been an hour and 40 minutes, but I think we've covered the things that we've wanted to cover. And really at the end of the day, we just wanted to give people an opportunity to watch this video that maybe were sort of on the fence, um, share it with family members that were maybe on the fence and wanted some kind of unbiased just information, right? Um, uh, but there's been a few questions in the chat that I'm that I that are not really purview to this particular broadcast that we're doing. But I I guess in all sort of you know transparency, and here we are. I guess we can go ahead and talk about those. And I know um, Ratu had already responded to one particular question there. But uh, Dr. Jarvis, did you want to did you want to talk about ivermectin for a second?
3: Sure. So there have been. I I think the main reason I want to address this. I think Radu, um really summarized what I think is unfortunate, which is that there just doesn't seem to be a benefit to ivermectin. Um, and I think all of us would agree that that's unfortunate. We would all like there to be something that we could use to treat this. Um, I don't particularly like looking at really sick people and telling them there's not much I can do. Um, that's not what I get into medicine for. So I think that this is a good opportunity to discuss why we should be skeptical about the first small observational things we hear about any drug. So drug X comes out for condition Y, heart attack or seizures or anything. And the initial data that we see on it is based on observational trials, meaning they're not randomized. We just look at a group and say, show me those people who got this drug and those people who did not get this drug. And you look at that with maybe 100 patients and you say, oh, my, look at this. The ones who got the drug did better. Maybe if you're being honest, the best you can say is there is an association between better outcome and this drug that is hypothesis generating. It doesn't mean that that drug caused the better outcome. This is just a signal. It's a hint that we need to go out and we need to do better studies. We need to do randomized controlled studies. One of the big problems with observational studies is that you get these confounding variables. Maybe there's a reason some people got ivermectin and some didn't. The only way to control for that is a randomized trial. So we had some initial signals that ivermectin would be helpful. And those initial signals came from the same place that the initial signals of hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin came from, which is a test tube. So in vitro, there is at massive, massive levels, way higher than anything that would be toxic in humans, there is some activity against viral replication. So there's a reason we might think that, hey, maybe this works work in humans, let's look into it. Initial observational trials, particularly in outpatients, where, as Ritu points out, all of them, well, I shouldn't say all of them, the vast majority are gonna do better no matter what you do. You give some ivermectin and sure enough, they do well. So our hint here is, well, wow, it must be the ivermectin. So the correct thing to do is randomized control trials. And unfortunately, there have now been randomized control trials of azithromycin, of uh, hydroxychloroquine, of chloroquine, of ivermectin. And as a matter of fact, of all combinations of those things, they've been high-dose, low-dose, pre-hospitalization, post-hospitalization. And unfortunately, there's just no difference. And that's the really frustrating thing. But just because there is early data that doesn't pan out doesn't mean we're suppressing evidence. It doesn't mean it's a function of big pharma. By the way, Big Pharma doesn't make money on ivermectin. Um, It's, you know, so you're not really, there's no, there's no conspiracy here. This is just unfortunately how science works. You get an additional hint that there's a benefit and then you look at it in more detail with better studies and unfortunately, very frequently, that benefit goes away. There is one study that's been going around that looks at a systematic uh, systematic review and meta-analysis of studies with um, ivermectin, and it's a legitimate researcher. There's no, I mean, I don't think we need to say anything bad about this researcher, but a systematic review and meta-analysis is only as good as the component trials that go into it.
2: I I, I think I've read this. I think I've read this benefit to
3: Ivermectin was um, heavily dependent on one study. This was an Egyptian study of ivermectin. And unfortunately after it got published, they found that that there were huge parts of it that had been plagiarized and they couldn't account for where the data came from. So there were some significant significant problems with it, significant enough that the journal withdrew that article. The author Mm -hmm. of the systematic review and meta-analysis said, well, since the biggest part of my trial, just got withdrawn i have to recalculate this without that trial and when he did it no difference
1: yeah i think the other piece too is there was another trial that on on paper on face looks really cool um and it was published as a preprint um and so we all get pdf sent to us by well meaning folks who say um who say well this just got published but it was a preprint and a preprint is science by, um, press release. Uh, it, it is basically, uh, they have decided, and, and I will say that I see people who are, um, arguing like for vaccination who will refer to preprint prints. And I really, I, I, I really don't think that's a good plan. And so so when you are when somebody sends you a thing you need to figure out you need to look at the at the PDF and see you know when was it submitted to the journal and when was it approved because i, I think i think Hayden's point that when he reads um, a jur- an article from a journal in a specialty that he's not familiar with it's very hard to take to to make the right conclusion well the whole point of peer review in peer review has problems I get that. Yes, Jeff, I have been your reviewer number three in the past, um, but <laughs> but <laughs> I knew that had your handwriting all over it. Peer review is not perfect. Um, I think I have reviewed one of your, but anyway, peer, <laughs> peer review is peer review is not perfect by any stretch, but it gives the work to people who are experts and and. The other thing is that most, it's not only experts both in the content area, but also in the statistical methods that are used. And um, those experts have to basically say, yeah, this passes muster. Um, And they can look at the data and say, yeah, this doesn't make any sense. This is garbage. Where did they get the data? We need more information. And so when you get when something gets published as a peer, as a preprint it's had no peer review. It's went through no process. It's like Jeff and I sitting down tomorrow and writing a paper, which Jeff has mostly been writing the last three days, last three months for us anyway. Um, we all but, hair went. Yeah. Well, and I put some comments in, but it's, and then instead of submitting it, like we're planning to do this week, it's just putting it out there and saying, this is done. It's, it's now the gospel it's now the truth. so when somebody sends you a preprint I would just be very skeptical um, and I again there are preprints that argue for vaccination that I that I put aside like a, you know not unless it's either in, in in unless it's in the peer-reviewed literature which the CDC's MMWR is peer-reviewed um, uh, I don't think you I don't I just don't think it should be included in the argument.
3: So the basically what we're looking, what we're talking about here, and I think this is the the source that everybody sees this is the medrivx.org. It's a site, it's a server for these pre-release, pre-review papers. I had never heard of this thing before the pandemic. Early on in a pandemic, if you think back to what life was like when you were trying to figure out how to treat patients. Early, early on in this, nobody had any idea. Um, All we knew that were, this is dangerous, lots of people are dying, we're not sure what to do. I think you can make a case for something like this early on in a pandemic, but you have to be wary about it and you have to understand you are suspending the rules of science. And those rules have evolved over hundreds of years for a very good reason we are far enough along in this pandemic that I'm ready for the rules of science to account again. We need to flip that switch and I think we have gotten to the point where let's just wait the time that it takes to get through peer review. Um, I can tell you having gone through peer review as an author and as a reviewer, as can the other folks on this panel here, how much a paper changes for the better with peer review. Um, Not only does it make it easier to read and the logical flow is better, I've had my papers where peer reviewers have pointed out some methodological issues that I just didn't think of. I went back and changed the methodological methodological issues, and sometimes that can dramatically change the results. So peer review, it's not perfect. It's kind of like democracy. Democracy is the worst form of government, you know, except for all the others. Um, peer review is not perfect, but it is definitely better than everything else out there. All right, what? listen,
0: we're we're an hour and fifty three minutes. We are not going a one stitch, one stitch. I tell you, past two hours on this. So this is what I want. This is how I want to get this closed out. First thing I want to I want to address a couple of comments. Uh, YouTube is lighting up by the way. A lot of comments on YouTube. Um, oh, good. So on YouTube, so thanks for the folks joining us on YouTube. Um, a lot of questions being asked, they must've joined late because we answered a, a lot of those already. So I encourage you guys to go back, watch the beginning and, uh, and, and sort of take a peek at some of that. And maybe once the video is finished, I can go in there editing, put some timestamps in so you can sort of jump to those different places. Great. Uh, so that's the first thing. Second thing, uh, a lot of people, <clears throat> excuse me, are asking about, hey, can you talk about the legal side of things? Can employers mandate, can states mandate, believe me, we're going to. And actually, the Standard of Care podcast, proud member of the Flybridge Ed podcast family, by the proud way. Proud member of the FlightBridgeEd. Proud. proud member. And a and fire production. By the way, I just want to throw that out there. Um, they, this, like, they covered that. Go back. There's like nine episodes. It was like episode three or four. Like we, They've been on this since the get-go. But we are planning on having both um, uh, Nick and Sam, and we'll have her too, and Jeff back on here, and we're going to do another podcast, really on the legal aspects of this. It turns out it's mostly been decided like a hundred years ago, but nonetheless, let's talk about this. We'll 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 address it. We're not going to
3: let something like that keep us from a podcast.
0: Yeah, I know exactly, but it's good. We're going to talk about it, and most importantly, really, we want to take your guys' questions on that stuff. So stay tuned. Probably within the next week to ten days, two weeks tops. We'll get another live episode out here with uh, with Sam and Nick and the rest of the gang here, and we'll jump on there. But what I want to do is I want to take this last five minutes, and I want to go around to each of these uh, physicians, and I want you guys just to have uh, a minute or two and just um, final thoughts. So we'll start with uh, our guest, Hayden, Dr. Hayden Smith.
2: Sure. Um, you know, I think my final thoughts are that... Um, Well, first off, it's been a pleasure to be here and with you guys again. I definitely enjoy uh, doing these podcasts with you guys. Um, I think my takeaway from everything is that, you know, working with these guys, seeing how hard they've been working on answering all of your questions. You know, I think, and you know, from everyone that I've talked to, physicians really care. They're not trying to convince you to do something for their own benefit. They're not trying to convince you because some drug company told you to do something. You know, a lot of the things that your physician is going to tell you uh, is really is at, is for your benefit. And, you know, I think I've seen that in a lot of the things that, you know, Jeff and Ritu have done uh, in studying these questions, um, you know, and, and myself, as I've tried to help others work through COVID questions and things, you know, the. The hope is that we can all come to this decision together and I don't want to convince you or force you to do something. I want you to understand it so that you can make a, a well-informed decision and the hope is that we've been able to do that through this podcast.
0: Awesome. Thanks so thank you. appreciate you jumping on here. Again, we Both. love you. You're 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 one of us now. Anytime you want to come on, you're just going to we just just come on. I love it. Thanks so much for that. I appreciate that.
3: Dr. Jarvis. So I wanted to, just as an indication, I think all of us, as Hayden was saying, have really tried to approach this question of whether to get vaccinated or not from an evidentiary basis. What does the evidence show? And I think when it comes to whether, at least for me, I have been convinced, I think the evidence is overwhelming that vaccines are safe and they're effective. But there are still, at least to me, some questions that are outstanding. Um, One of my medics got COVID, and he actually got fairly sick with COVID, and this was long before vaccines were available. And his big question is, well, if I've already had COVID, do I need to get vaccinated? And I'm not sure that I really have a great answer for that question yet. Um, I think the evidence on this is mixed, and it's not nearly as strong as the evidence for whether to get vaccinated or not. Early on, there was some evidence um, that you don't, if you get COVID, the amount of antibodies that you create are not as high as the amount of antibodies that you create with vaccination. And that's where the recommendation for vaccination after having COVID comes from. I think particularly in the realm of Delta, um, we have seen there was just a recent paper, again, pre-publication with all the the worries that come from that, that suggest that perhaps the ability to fight off serious infection and illness is greater with um, what's called natural immunity, having had the virus, than it is from having two full doses of um, mRNA vaccine. So that's one pre-peer review trial, but having read it over, the methods seem reasonable. Um, I'd really like to see that duplicated um, and see it on larger scales. Um, but one thing, let's just assume that that is true. I think you have to ask yourself, if that's true, what do you do with it? Do you go out and have an inoculation party where you just have everybody try to get COVID? No, because we that's a really, really bad idea. People do die from COVID. We've seen millions of people now die from COVID. This is not just the flu. This is a significant issue. It's like playing Russian roulette. Five times out of six that you pull that trigger, you're going to be fine. So you could say, well, you know, the risk of blowing my brains out playing Russian roulette is grossly overrated. Five times out of six, I do just fine. Yeah, but that sixth one's a bitch. And I think that's what happens with COVID. Even if it's a small percentage of people with COVID who die, there are hell, I don't know, 8 billion people on the planet now. Um, 1% of them is an awful lot of people. So it's important that the risk, if you just give yourself COVID to prevent getting COVID, it doesn't really make sense because the disease can be really nasty. The final thing they did in this pre-release, pre-review paper is they actually compared those who had been vaccinated but never had COVID, those who had COVID but had not been vaccinated and those who had had COVID and been vaccinated and those who had COVID and been vaccinated had really low levels of reinfection and much higher uh, rates of antibodies. So. Where we might end up with this, and again, I don't know, and I think it's important that we say we don't know this yet, is that if you get COVID, maybe you only need one dose rather than two. Mm -hmm. Um, But I I do want to point that out. I wanted to bring it up because I know the question is out there and I wanted to bring it up because when we say we are answering our questions based on what the available evidence is, if the evidence doesn't give us a good answer, I think we're gonna be honest with you and tell, tell you that we don't have a good answer. Yet. Well,
0: thank you for that. We'll learn more, right? All right, Dr. Sani, sir. <laughs> um,
1: uh, Ted Lasso says, be, be curious, not judgmental. Um, really wanted to try to answer your questions today. Um, You know, we're we're all very tired. We all work very hard. And for fun, we come on and do this stuff. But I worked four days out of the last five in the emergency department. I saw about, I admitted a number of patients with COVID. Um, A large percentage of my patients, um, uh, a larger percentage than normal were COVID patients. And almost all, but not all were not vaccinated. Um, uh, th- you know i i don't ha- I don't have any agenda other than um, y- your health, that health of my patients, and my ability to go to football games, and all those things are impacted by by whether or not our community gets vaccinated. Um, there's a lot of false information out there and sometimes that false information can be, can sound scientific or, and the person can sound knowledgeable. And so I, in some ways I am, uh, another one of those guys, if you will, Um, but but I do, my motivation is pretty clear. Um, uh, I really just want this thing to end. Um, and uh, I can tell you again that Dr. Jarvis and I in particular, I've known Jeff for a while, um, Hayden also, we're skeptical in general when we read research, read things. And um, the best way to not die for COVID from COVID is to not get it the best way, the most reasonable way to not get COVID is to get vaccinated. It's not 100%, but no one here wants to lock themselves in an isolation chamber, because that's the only way to guarantee you won't get it. The next way is to get your shot. Um, I believe that it's the right thing to do. I believe that as a healthcare worker, it's absolutely my responsibility to get it. Um, And I'm, for any of you who work with me um, I'm happy to answer any other questions that you might have um, on this. Um, but please do your part to end this nineteen month pandemic. This has been a production of the Flight Bridge Ed podcast, leading the way in pre-hospital critical care and emergency medicine education.